our next guest is phenomenal. You've already heard from him once. He's best-selling author, man of God, extraordinary teacher and speaker, Eric Metaxas. Come on up. Uh, guys, make Eric feel welcome. We're so glad you're with us. Bless you. Wow, wow. Come on. What is going on? What is happening? What is happening? God bless you. Thank you. I get overwhelmed uh, by that and uh, very humbled by that. And then when I go home and my family doesn't do it, it's, it's, de it's depressing. I want to rebuke them. Uh, praise the Lord. Well, we got so much from, from Lance. What a scrambled mess that speech was. Am I right? <laughs> Unbelievable. Then he tries to fool you by scribbling. Could it, did anybody read the word Zerubbabel? I, I, I think we're just like, yeah. Who's playing these games? I'm on to him. I've known him for many years. I'm on to that whole thing. Um, I, I have to say, God is clearly speaking because I hear speakers speak. I, I heard Mario Murillo, who's going to speak later, speak, and Lance now, saying what I know I'm hearing and what I want to say. I would say it in my own way. I don't use whiteboards. But, uh, but I believe the Lord is speaking. The Lord speaks today. And uh, it's encouraging. It's, it's, it's very encouraging. Um, because I spoke yesterday, uh, I, I thought I would do something a little different today um, in, in terms of what I wanted to share. And I thought since... Brother Lance felt the freedom to be rambly. Uh, I would be a little bit rambly without, without the boards though. So it's gonna be, so you gotta really listen now. You gotta really listen. No, that was so, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mock you if I didn't admire you. You know that, right? That's my highest compliment, to mock you publicly, brother. That's it, oh, honestly. Uh, if I mock, mock you publicly, we're, we're close. Um, so. I wanted to tell you a little bit about my story, my own story, because it fits in with uh, kind of a larger theme, uh, and I didn't realize this, but I wrote the story of my life. I always wanted to write the story of how I came to faith. And I came to faith uh, in 1988. It was right around my 25th birthday. The Lord spoke to me miraculously in a dream. It was one of those things that's just utterly flat out, miraculous, mind-blowing, game over, I'm born again. You know, it was... Uh, it's, uh, it's nice work if you can get it. Um, but we don't have any control over our dreams, right? You can eat a lot of cheese, but really the Lord's not in that, you know? It's like I'm talking about a Holy Ghost miracle. But what the Lord um, spoke to me in that dream wouldn't really make sense to anybody else. Uh, it was kind of a crazy story, um, but it made perfect sense to me because we serve a personal God who knows us utterly intimately, knows every detail of our lives. And so what the Lord spoke to me in that dream made perfect sense to me, such perfect sense that it just blew my mind. And I thought, if I ever write about it, I'm going to need to tell the story of my life up to that point so the reader kind of understands who I was at age 25 when this dream came and why all this stuff made sense to me. So I, I tell that story, but as I have gone around the country kind of really telling my testimony and the story of, of my life. This is in the last year and a half, because I've since written a book called Is Atheism Dead, which I also want to talk about, which is pure apologetics. Um, 
and then I have this new book coming out, which actually I will be signing books after I'm done speaking here, obviously. But I, the, the point is that sometimes the Lord in retrospect reveals to you the thread. You don't see it when you're, when you're doing it. And I realize that a lot of what I talk about, it's just a different version of the same thing. And what is the same thing? Um, what do I mean? What I mean is when I was born again at age 25, I, just so you have the background of who I was at that time, I grew up like Donald Trump in Queens, okay? Not as much money in our family. Uh, but uh, my mom and dad came from Europe in the 50s. My dad came from Greece on a boat. My mother came from Germany on a boat. They came from countries that knew evil. They knew that what we have here is not normal. When they saw the Statue of Liberty, they were choked up. It meant something to them because they had come from places that did not have freedom, did not have long story, and I, I've talked about it other times, but it really meant something to them. So they raised me to understand. They didn't have to try to tell me like America is great. All they had to do was tell me like what they had been through and what they had come from. Um, and if you know, if you're raised by a Greek and a German, um, you're gonna be a messed up person and God's, <laughs> God's gonna have to heal that someday, and he's working on it. But if you're raised by a Greek and a German, that means you'll be raised Greek. I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. You're, you're Greek, right? So I grew up in the Greek, so I grew up in the Greek church, Greek Orthodox church, and a lot of us, even in the evangelical world, church is a cultural experience, right? You're not really getting the download, you're not getting whatever. That's what the experience was for my wife in the Catholic church when I was growing up. I would argue, you know, uh, and John MacArthur's not here, is he? Thank the Lord. I would argue, that, no, it's, it's kind of funny because there, there are certain people who are like, Catholicism, it's like, look, basically, since we're living in a world filled with devils, I don't really have a problem with people who worship Jesus in the Catholic Church. That's basically a good thing. And same thing with the Greek Orthodox. So it's kind of funny, people who love to get into that stuff. I think that there are people, there is a spirit in a way, people who love to disagree, they love to argue about doctrine, they love to find out where you're wrong so they can show how you're not in and they're in, right? That's not the spirit of Jesus, sorry. And you know what? Uh, whether something is the spirit of Jesus, kind of an important thing, kind of important, right? So, but there are people who almost delight in figuring out you're going to hell. They, they kind of delight in that. Well, if they delight in that, that's the spirit of the devil, that's not the spirit of the Lord, right? So I grew up in secular New York, uh, going to the Greek Orthodox Church where, you know, the gospel is like, be a good boy, don't get in trouble, work hard and listen to your parents or they'll smack you. You know, like, you know, good stuff, but not sufficient for salvation. Um, so by the time I had, you know, the American dream, I went to Yale University. Oh, this is a big deal for an immigrant's kid, working class home uh, to get to go to a place like that. Not knowing until I got to Yale University, like, oh, this is different than what I was raised to, to think. These people, you know, these were the cultural global elites this was in the 80s, but they were already into the politically correct, you know, America is bad, uh, evangelical conservatives are of the devil, you know, th th this kind of stuff. Like, it was already there, and I'm a working class kid coming from a, from a, a working class home, and you kind of come into this and you go, well this, well, this is interesting, but I didn't know what I believed. I didn't, I, I didn't know, like, oh, I reject that. or what I was like, oh, you know, I guess this is how the successful people think. I guess this is how the people who run the world think, and I, I guess I should learn how to think that way. But what do I know, right? 
So I kind of drifted along. And you know what? That's what we do. That's, that's our nature, our sin nature, right? We want to get along. We kind of drift along. So I drifted along and kind of picked up that narrative. And then I graduated. And I always say that, you know, the, at a place like Yale, like, you know, 250 years ago, they were theologically spot on. After that, not so much. Right? It's kind of, it's kind of funny. I could talk a long time about that. But the point is... Um, they kind of give you the memo, and a lot of times people don't say these things. You're not going to hear this in the, in the secular media. The secular media isn't going to say, hey, worship the devil. They're not going to say that, right? They're not going to say, oh, life has no meaning. They're never going to say that, okay? They're, even, even the worst sinner is created in the image of God and longs for meaning and truth and whatever, even though they might pretend they don't believe in those things. They're longing for that. So at a place like Yale, they've completely, you know, uh, got the memo like, listen, Darwin made it very clear that we got here by chance, 100% by chance, natural selection took over, and everything that you see, whatever, it was done without God, and we now know that, right? So if you really think about that, that means life literally has no meaning, which is unbelievably depressing. So the goal is not to think about that, right? So the goal of education is no longer to ask the big questions and answer the big questions, whatever, because it's like we figured out the big questions are really, it's really depressing. Life has no meaning. The love you have for your children, for your spouse, for your parents, all that is just chemicals. It's just, uh, uh, we're just perpetuating the species. This has no, you know, actual transcendence. There's no such thing as love or goodness. Or that. There's no such thing. But we don't want to talk about that because that's so bleak, you want to kill yourself. And the fact of the matter is, if you really take that in and don't want to kill yourself, something's wrong with you. If you take in the idea that there's literally no meaning in the universe, that we emerged out of primordial muck by chance, by accident, and your life literally has no meaning, that you're an accident, if you could really take that in, it's just like monstrously bleak. But most of us can't take it in, and most of the pagans can't take it in, because parentheses, it's not true, and they're made in the image of God. So they kind of create this idea, well, I can have meaning without, you know, that religion and that God stuff, whatever. So, so I kind of took this in. And I think at places like Yale, and this I find comical, because their attitude is, well, we don't want to really be on the nose about that life is totally meaningless. And that uh, there is no meaning, there's no good, there's no evil, whatever. We're just going to pretend or sort of concoct some way of, of acting as though their life has meaning, you know, it's uh, be against racism and do this and do that and whatever, you know, they're not like doing the math to figure out like, why is racism wrong if life has no meaning? If there's no good or evil, why is anything wrong? Why are you standing on that side and not this side? Why do you care? They don't want to get into that because they know there's, there's nothing there, right? So they just kind of, and this is kind of the culture we live in, the culture it presents a false narrative, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not really clear. It doesn't really say life has no meaning, therefore just like party until you die or whatever. You know, they, they kind of act like, well, we want to be nice people and we want to do this and we want to do that. In other words, they're basically giving you the message, look, we know have, life has no meaning, but let's not focus on that. Get a good job and uh, 
work really hard to get a good job and have a good life. And, you know, whatever you do, don't think about the meaning of life. Whatever you do, don't think about those things. And all these people who talk about truth and God, just avoid them because it's just, we know they're crazy and they're insurrectionists and you just want to avoid them, right? So, you know, on the weekend, there's like sports and alcohol. Just distract yourself for a few decades and get a good job and then it'll all be over. They don't actually say that, but that's basically what the world is selling, right? So, so the goal is, you know, get a good job. Now, I was at Yale. I wanted to be a writer. I was an English major. So you can kind of guess, I did not get a good job. <laughs> yeah, did you guess? I wanted to be a writer. Well, I come from a working class immigrant background. How do you know? You know what do I ask my father? Like, hey, dad, can you hook me up with any of your poet friends, you know? Uh, you know, you have any friends who are editors at the New Yorker, Ma? No, they never heard of the New Yorker. What are you talking about, right? Like, what, what, what? So I was just kind of, I graduated and I'm floating and drifting, did not get a good job. So I had plenty of time to think about the meaning of life, unfortunately. <laughs> and now, by the way, if you graduate college and you don't know what you're doing and you're floating and drifting, you know what'll happen. It's like a math, it's, you know, this is like a, a, a rule of life. If you float and drift out of college, you will end up moving back in with your parents. Like that's just a law. It's a law you have to obey. So I moved back in with my parents and when you move back in with your parents who happen to be European immigrants from war-torn Europe who didn't have food, much less the opportunity to go to college, they're going to look at you like, excuse me, why are you here? What, 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 like we, we work hard menial jobs to kind of help you get through Yale. So what, what are you doing back home? You know, and my friends, Parents would be like, oh, Eric's trying to find himself. It's so sweet, you know. And my parents are like, yeah, Eric should find himself a job and get out, right? So, so long story short, things got so bad. I moved back home. I got a job as a proofreader at Union Carbide in Danbury, Connecticut. The biblical word, you could look it up, Gehenna. Pure, I, 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 really, this is, the, this is the super short version of, the, of this story. I, I uh, you know, if, uh, if I'm invited to a church and I speak on this, I'll give you the, the longer version. But I knew I was unhappy and lost. But I had been told there is no answer. I had been told that those people who believe in Jesus, blah, 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 they're nuts. And the best you can know is that we can't know. And you got to understand, you got to look at things from the point of view of the world, the people who would just think we're all crazy here, right? They really believe, like, you can't know whether there's a God or you, you, you just can't know that. And so the best thing you can do is just do your best and, and just do your best. But you can't know whether there's a God. Well, the Lord in his mercy, in my misery, reached out to me and spoke to me in this dream and I was born again. Again, this is the short version of the story, but it completely blew my mind. I knew the Bible was true and I knew that whatever, and I can't take a lot of credit for making a decision for Christ because I was unconscious at the time. You understand that, <laughs> right? Which is a spiritual story there, right? Spiritual parallel. When you accept Jesus, you are spiritually dead. You are like a corpse that it, it's like saying, Lazarus, I know you've been rotting in there for four days, but you need to exercise your faith. <laughs> no, he has nothing. He is a corpse. And spiritually, we are corpses. And when the Lord comes and saves us, he is bringing life to what is dead. That's a spiritual truth. So I 
was born again, whatever. But the reason I, I tell you this is because suddenly now, my mind is blown because I'm thinking what I was sure either wasn't true or even if it was true, you could never know if it's true. I now know that it's true. What, what am I going to do? All my friends will think I'm crazy, and, and, but I know this is true, and I'm living in a world that pretends that none of this stuff that's true is true. But it's not just that Jesus rose from the dead and that the Bible is the word of God and all this different stuff. That's just the beginning. Think of what flows from a world that says none of that's true. You have to concoct some insane reality. It's a parallel reality, para-reality, because it's not reality. The Lord created reality. The Lord is truth. There's no squirming out of that, right? So you can respect someone who doesn't agree with you and whatever, but you can't pretend like, well, you have your reality and I have my reality. That's kind of where we are today with the transgender stuff. It's kind of like this romantic when I say, I don't mean romantic, I mean romantic in the sense of Rousseau and whatever, when people began to sort of worship feelings and everything becomes subjective. So there's no truth, there's no reality, whatever you feel is true, right? You know, that's insanity, we know. But the point is, we need to know that what we believe, either it's true or it's not. If it's true, what follows? Well, everything follows. So we, we're living in a world, for example, it's another talk which I don't have time to give, but I wrote a book called um, If You Can Keep It, The Forgotten Promise of American Liberty, where I really finally understood, this is only, I don't know, seven years ago that I really understood this, and I'm, 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 I'm embarrassed to this day, that I, so late in life that I really understand that what, you know, uh, people like David Barton and Bill Federer have known, you know, forever and have been teaching the world and every homeschooler seems to know this, but I didn't really understand that you can, yeah. Um, the homeschoolers are going to take over the world, and that is, yeah. And I know, I know that. I know that. It's like the greatest joy. It gives me huge, huge hope. Uh, huge hope. So, but what I was going to say was that um, I guess I never really understood. In other words, why is it that if you don't believe you basically have two narratives going on, okay? And there's all these different levels to every narrative, right? But I'm saying the, the major narrative is like, this is true, and then this narrative is baloney, right? Can I use the word baloney here? In, 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 uh, hogwash? Scubalon? How far can I go? Um, so, but what I'm saying is that if you don't believe the truth of God, the truth of God will lead you, when I talked about my book, um, If You Can Keep It, I really understood that it was because of the scripture and because of the revivals in the 18th century, thanks to George Whitfield preaching up and down the coast, it was because of that that we had a people with enough virtue that it was possible for the founding fathers to say, we think these people could do what's never been done in the history of the world, which is govern themselves. If you understand the lunacy of the idea of people governing themselves, people from the beginning of time had never governed themselves. Why? Because we're sinners, we're messed up, and we always had to be governed from without, from above, from whatever. Somehow, God in his mercy working through history, and we don't know why the Lord does this, why the Lord, he didn't just, you know, okay, Jesus has ascended, you know, let's have self-government. 17 centuries later, we first get 
the United States of America. But we have to understand that the founders understood, and again, this is part of the narrative, right? They understood, oh, by the way, there's no such thing as self-government and liberty without virtue and without pretty much a lot of people who take faith very seriously, okay? Now, they also understood you can't legislate that because if you force that by legislation, those people are no longer free, right? So this is the conundrum, the paradox at the heart of liberty. So, but you start realizing that if you have all these things for, for decades and centuries, you begin to take it for granted. And so I grew up at a time when we had really shifted away from the narrative of America is though flawed, you know, the greatest experiment in liberty in the history of the world and it's obviously, uh, you know, done a few things of note, put some men on the moon and like, you know, I mean, when you start looking at the track record of, of, of what God has accomplished through our form of government, it's astonishing. I mean, even if the only thing you care about is missions, right? How many missions, I mean, wherever you look. But the point is that by the time I got to Yale in the 80s, this narrative had been happening, of course, since the 60s. You can go back and back and trace it. But the point is that it's this narrative based on the idea that, oh yeah, there is no God. And uh, so we're going to try to come up with our own version of reality. And our own version of reality, it's going to be different in every way from the thing called reality and truth. So, so we're going to start drifting away from self-government because we don't even believe that's possible and we are certainly not going to talk about virtue in the schools. What's that? We're not going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about, you know, the heroes of the revolution and the sacrifices in their faith and whatever. So we're going to create this, this alternative reality. We're going to start tearing down all these heroes and we're basically drifting towards socialism and communism, right? That's, that's, that's what happens. And that's, of course, what's happening now. And if you do not know truth, if you do not know reality, if you do not know the truth about history, you're going to be guilty of this. You're going to drift along just the way I drifted along because I didn't know what, what, what is true, who's to say. So this is the narrative that we've all been living under. And I'll never forget that moment when I was born again, realizing, no, 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 it's true. It's true. The Bible is true. Jesus is Lord. And it kind of changes everything. It changes everything. And I'm I'm kind of like living in a movie because the whole world is crazy. They, they don't believe this and they insist that I'm crazy. And everybody at Yale that I went to, they're, they're leading the world. They've got these big jobs and stuff and they know I'm crazy. And, and, and as my faith leads me to be more politically conservative, whatever, they know I'm really crazy because I th now I'm starting to think really evil things like abortion's a bad idea. That's the world outside of this room that's the world outside the serious church. And what Lance was talking about in his broken way <laughs> was what he was trying to say, if only he, no, when he talked about, it was up on the board, I wrote it down. Uh, he, he wrote about the sustained pattern of public persuasion, okay? Now, listen, this is, there's a lot here. The sustained pattern of public persuasion. There are a lot of Christians, okay, who deep inside them, okay, they're happy when they find out how you're wrong and going to hell. It gives them joy that they're in, you're out. There's a lot of Christians kind of happy when they feel like, yes, we're definitely in end times, it's all gonna burn in five minutes and I can't wait to watch. 
they kind of are happy. It's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. Well, listen, folks, if that's what the Lord says, that's one thing. But if the Lord says, it's not going to burn yet, I would like you to fight for what is right and true and good for the sake of all those people like that. At that point, if your attitude is, God's already judged America, I'm done. You will not fight because you feel like, this, what's the point in fighting? I want it to burn. I want it to, I want it to be over. I want to see judgment fall. If that's in your heart, folks, that's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. Now, I understand how part of that could be Jesus, right? You want, you want to see judgment for, for what is wrong. You want to see, I mean, we want to see justice is what we want. But justice and judgment are not exactly the same thing, right? In other words, we're talking about we are called by God to fight in the arena to the best of our ability and if we lose, that's fine, as long as we fight when the Lord tells us to fight. He is the one that's going to give us the victory. He's going to get the victory. The battle belongs to him. We need to be clear on that. But when you say, like, I don't care. It's already done. Why should I vote? Why should I vote when I have to vote for somebody who's been married three times? I'm not going to dirty my hands and vote for him. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. There's a spirit, okay? It's a religious spirit. It's a spirit that takes joy in condemning those that are outside, that are dirty. It's, that's, not, that's not the Jesus spirit. It's a pharisaical religious thing. And it has been in the church from the beginning. From the beginning. In fact, many, many people that we would consider heroes of the faith have been guilty of, of this kind of thing. Okay? So if we're going to be honest ourselves as believers, this stuff has always been with us. But we're living at a time now where the Lord is saying, I need my people to stand and fight. I need my church to be the church. But there are going to be plenty of voices that are going to say, why? <laughs> it's already done. It's already been judged. Who cares? We don't care. Now, here's the problem. If it's only about yourself that you don't care, you're still in sin because the Lord died for you and he cares about you. But the point is, if you don't do what is right, and if you don't fight on the local level, and if you don't get involved in this and this and this and this and this, and this other people are going to suffer. Other people, and the Lord commands you to love them. And you love them by fighting for what is right and true. So imagine William Wilberforce at a time fighting against the slave trade. Don't you think that there were Christians holier than Jesus who were like, why dirty your hands in this political stuff? It's just about salvation and your own piety. You're getting involved in politics? Well, he was like, well, yeah, I have a problem. The Lord calls me to love those strangers with the black skin, and, and I actually do. And so, yes, I'm going to use what God has given me for, for them. Well, the Lord is always calling his people to do things like that. He doesn't call everyone to do the same thing. Every one of us has a different piece but the point is, there were people in Wilberforce's day, and there were people in Bonhoeffer's day, I said some of this yesterday, that their attitude is like, no, 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 we just want to focus on, you know, our own salvation and our own piety. We want to justify ourselves before God. And so when I got saved, I remember thinking, we've got a big problem here. I live in a country that's ruled by a governing elite that thinks anybody who loves America, or, and this is the late 80s, okay, but anybody who loves America 
or, or really believes in God and, and all those homespun values, even values like motherhood and fatherhood and family and whatever, that's all this hokey stuff. We're kind of looking forward to this sort of, you know, Marxist utopianist future where we're all going to be self-actualized, even though life has no meaning, but we can't talk about that right now. You know, like, I remember thinking, I... I grew up in New York and Connecticut. I went to Yale. The Lord has given me the ability to speak the language of these cultural elites who think this stuff is crazy. And most of those people, they've never even heard. They, you talk about an echo chamber. They've never heard any of this stuff that a lot of us take for granted. And if that's my wife, I'm not here. I don't want her to know I do this. She thinks I'm at the bar. Um, So, so I, um, I remember thinking after I got saved, this is in the late 80s, early 90s, thinking like, wow, we, the church, we got to get busy. We've, we've got to, you know, back then, uh, before anybody had talked about Seven Mountains or whatever, I just thought to myself, we need to, we're not even involved even at all in the world of media. We don't exist in the world of, of the media. If I turn on the TV, maybe I'll get somebody behind a, a pulpit preaching. And if I'm not a born again believer, I'm just clicking past that. Like that's like I'm clicking past the bass fishing channel if I'm not a bass fisherman. It's like, and there's no judgment. It's just like, not for me, not for me, not for me. So we existed only in that sense. And there was some, you know, conservative stuff maybe, but the point is the wider culture had been utterly taken over by secular, humanist, liberal, agnostic, atheist, whatever you call it, there, there was none of what we believe reflected in the culture or in the media. And I thought this is kind of funny because um, what we believe is it's not just our point of view, it's actually true, and it is truth, and if you follow it, it leads you into every other kind of truth. If you want to figure out how to run government or how to do anything, like God will lead you. <laughs> it's, it's called truth. It's, it's kind of like saying, I think math is stupid. Well, good luck building a bridge, right? <laughs> like, all truth is God's truth, and if you reject it, you're, you're not going to be able to do anything. And I really just thought, we as believers, we need to be involved in this. Now, because I was an English major, I want to be a writer, I want to be involved in the media, I really got excited about what Lance called sustained pattern of public persuasion. It's been phrased uh, in all kinds of ways, but the point is, I realized there were a lot of people in the church, they were not at all interested in that. They were interested in talking to themselves, they were interested in, you know, maybe judging the heathen outside the camp, but not going to them to lead them to truth, right? Now, you know, we all believe theoretically in evangelism, but you can't evangelize people that you've already kind of dismissed as loathsome, right? They might be wrong, but there are plenty of them out there, like I was, who simply have never heard anything that we now all know to be true. And Lance also mentioned William Wilberforce. I wrote a biography of Wilberforce. Most of these things I'm talking about are not for sale out there, but I'll sign anything. Um, <laughs> but I wrote a biography of William Wilberforce, and I saw that William Wilberforce, okay, most of us know him. Some of you saw the film Amazing Grace. That was not based on my book. My book came out with the film. But the film, uh, 
because it was uh, directed by, because created by some Christians or whatever, they wanted it to be so hip that they hired a non-Christian director. So he kind of like bleached out all the faith elements in it. So if God has mentioned five times, believers were so starved, we're like, yes, it's a Christian film. Not really. <laughs> it was like, it was basically, you know, it was decent. There was no cursing, right? So, but you know how you know it's not a Christian film, right? Because Kevin Sorbo was not in it. That's, I mean, seriously. Let's just, let's be honest. How could it be a Christian film if Kevin's not in it? Well, who, who are you trying to fool? But my, my point is that when I wrote the biography of William Wilberforce, what I discovered was what the film really doesn't go into. Number one, his faith was everything to him. When he came to faith, it's what made him know that slavery is evil and the slavery. So the whole story leads back to Jesus and the Bible. There's just no question about it, right? But the bigger picture, and what interests me even more, is that we only know him for that. We think of him as a politician. And so when I would speak about Wilberforce, people invite me to speak about Wilberforce, I'd always get the same question, like, who's the Wilberforce of today? Who's going to be the Wilberforce of today? And people would automatically think, like, you know, God's going to raise up a politician to be like Wilberforce. And you realize, no, the Lord doesn't do anything the same way twice. And who's to say that that's the main thing? I would argue that if you, if you really want to be doing a missions strategy on the West and on America, uh, our, our central problem today would be media. In other words, if, if you really want to know what's really enabling lies uh, to go out and false narratives to go out and whatever that, we, you know, it, it's like you've got a war and, and you say, we need more troops on the ground. We need troops on the ground. And you're like, excuse me, they have this thing called an air force and we don't have a single plane in the sky. Maybe we should build a couple of planes, right? So we've begun in a very limited way, but there's still that spirit in the church that says, you know, we don't, we don't really care about that. And in fact, you even see it in some movies that like they're Christian movies made for Christians, right? Like that's not necessarily bad, but what an amazing thing it would be if we created films or books or whatever that, that were for people who maybe weren't where we already are and it could help them get there, right? Now here's one problem. Those, those films might not make as much money, you know? Because a lot of Christians out there, you make films just for Christians, you can make some money. That's happening today. I know that, right? So I'm not against Christian films, but it's like, is the, where's the heart of God? You know, to make you feel better that you could take your kids to a film without the F-bomb? Is that like really what it's all about? Or to change the culture? It's, I mean, really, so what, what, uh, what Lance called a sustained pattern of public persuasion, we haven't been in that game. And I, I mean, I really, I remember this when I first got saved and this is going up to the present where you just be clicking around on the TV and you'd be like, where are the Christian voices? Because the impression I got before I became a Christian is like, there is no such thing. And then I would go to conferences and places and I would hear these amazing speakers and read these amazing books and whatever. None of that exists in the mainstream. So if you're a non-believer just living your life out there, you're never going to bump into any of this stuff. You're never going to hear of, of, uh, David Barton and all that stuff. You're never going to hear about it. all this stuff that we take for granted or the idea that there are brilliant um, uh, biblical exegetes who are doing teaching on the Bible. And you go, wow, that guy's really smart. We know tons of those guys. We listen to them, but the world doesn't even know 
that it's possible to be rational or brilliant and believe in the scripture and whatever. So the story of Wilberforce, I want to say, he not only was involved as a politician in bringing about the abolition of the slave trade, but two points. First of all, in bringing about the abolition of the slave trade, he didn't just do politics. So when Christians say, we need to get involved in politics, I'd be like, you're darn tootin' we do. But there's more. You've got to persuade people. You've got to persuade people through the culture. Because if most people know abortion is wrong, it's not going to be difficult for them to elect people who reflect that. But if most people don't know that, what do you think they're going to do? You, you can't just legislate, okay, especially in America, it's a free country, we, we can't just make laws, we, we have to get people to buy in and go like, that's a right law, that's a good law, that's a true law. And so Wilberforce worked in the culture as well as in politics. He made the case in the culture. And obviously I write about this not just in my book Amazing Grace by Wilberforce, but in other books that they understood you've got to win the heart of the culture, you've got to tell the stories. Uh, of the culture, but it goes beyond that. Think, people think of Wilberforce as the guy who led the abolition of the slave trade. Wilberforce effectively was used by God as a catalyst in innumerable areas. Because when Jesus comes into a picture, everything changes, not just, oh yeah, we had that slave trade thing, we abolished the slave trade. If you have the slave trade, okay, that's kind of a tip-off that this is a deeply pagan culture. So everywhere you looked, you saw brokenness. So 18th century England was as evil as you can imagine. It was an evil place. So slavery was just the top of the, the list of evils. But they had every other kind of evil. So when Wilberforce gets born again in his 20s and starts bringing his faith into not just politics, but into the cultural sphere, because he spoke the language of the elites. He'd been to Cambridge and he spoke that language, right? He didn't just say, well, I'm gonna go into the ministry and I'm gonna let it all burn, who cares? He stayed in the culture and fought in the culture. So for some people that looks like getting involved in politics, for other people it looks like getting involved in journalism, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. But the point is the Lord wants us to be in that mix, at that table, fighting, as Lance was just saying, a place at the table. Trump gave us a place at the table and we said like, what's a table? What is that again? We, it's been so long, we don't remember. Is it a Christian table? Ah. Uh, so Wilberforce, was all about evangelism, but he was all about everything else. So when people say it's about preaching the gospel, it's like, yeah, you better preach the gospel, but you better do everything else that goes along with preaching the gospel. Like, uh, about, I mean, listen, Jesus, somebody said this to me yesterday, Jesus didn't only preach the gospel. You think you're holier than Jesus? Obviously, many people do. Just preach the gospel. Don't be divisive. Don't say anything about millstones. Come on. So the fact of the matter is, Wilberforce brought about a revolution in his culture because he brought Jesus to bear on everything and because he did not disdain the elites who didn't speak the Christian language, he tried to reach out to them knowing some of them would get it. Many wouldn't, but some would, and some did. And you even have a story, I mean, in Wilberforce, he worked with people that were like terrible people in many ways. 
but they were willing to work with him on that issue. And he didn't say, I'm not gonna break bread with that bum. He's been married three times. He said, I'll work with you if you work with me because it's about the slaves. It's about them. It's not about me keeping my hands clean. It's about doing what is right for those who are suffering. The same thing happened, of course, with Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer said, I'll get my hands dirty. I'll get involved in the plot to kill Hitler because it's, it's about the millions of Jews that are, that are being persecuted. But there were tons of pious Germans who said, no, 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 no. You have to worry, just worry about your own soul. If the Gestapo comes to your door and says, are you hiding a Jew in your basement? Who cares about the Jew who's going to be taken away and killed? Worry about yourself and just say, well, I can't lie. I'm a Christian. Be a good witness to the Gestapo. So just say, uh, yeah, I got a Jew in the basement. Why don't you come get him and kill him and torture him? And I'm justified for God because I didn't lie. Folks, there are Christians who think that's the Christian response. Who, who do, they're that out of touch with God's heart. That's a pharisaical religious spirit. And there's tons of that. There's tons of those Christians in the Republican Party today. And I'm here to tell you that's not of God. It's not of God. That kind of pious view. You, you know in the, in the Narnia Chronicles where they say, is Aslan, is Aslan a tame lion? No. No, he's not tame. He's wild and scary, but he's good. We have to shift. The, the church has been stuck in this, this various versions of what I'm talking about, and we have not been interested in taking back the culture or doing what it takes, because we go, who cares about that? It's all going to burn. Who cares about that? Jesus is coming back in 10 minutes. He'll definitely be here by the year 2000. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. So I got my water purifying tablets. I got my Slim Jims. We got a thing out back. Y2K thing is going to bring it all down. I know this. It's in scripture. He's coming back in like 10 minutes. Well, newsflash, he didn't. And while he didn't come back, we were not about our father's business. We were just kind of like waiting for him to come. Instead of worrying about what is he calling me to do now? And we have so much to do, but there are many people, as I've said, that they're, they're not interested. They're happy to lose. They're happy to lose. So I'm not going to vote, but don't you understand if you don't vote, so-and-so is going to get in and they're going to bring real evil in. They're going to be, you know, my parents grew up in countries where I've seen what this looks like. But most Americans haven't seen what it looks like, and they think, how bad could it be? What's going to happen? Well, God in his mercy has given us a taste of what happens when we are not involved in these kinds of things. You want to see how bad it can get? You want to see how insane it can get? Now, the good news is not just that it's waking up the body, the remnant, that we're getting activated, but tons of non-believers are seeing the same thing. So God is using this. Now, part of what God has called me to do is to be involved in media. There's all kinds of things that I'm doing. I'm not going to go into it. But the fact of the matter is that the Lord has called us to do what we can. But there will always be voices that say, no, 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 play it safe. 
Tell the Gestapo man what he wants to know. Now, again, I said this yesterday. If you, if you fear God and know that he defeated death on the cross, you're not afraid if they're, oh, they're going to put you in jail. They're going to kill you. They're going to, what are they going to do? They're going to deplatform you, whatever. If you are motivated by those fears, you are not really believing God and you're under judgment. It's a scary thing when you think, well, I'm saved and I'll prove it by not lying to the Gestapo man. I'll prove it by doing the safe thing every time. I'll do the nice thing and maybe my captors will treat me more nicely. Rather than say, God has called me to fight to the death for what is true and right and I will fight for him. I, I'll close with this. In, 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 in the book, a letter to the American church, I talk about the parable of the talents. And we've all heard this, there's two versions of it, but the one, now, I didn't know this till recently, but a talent was a huge amount of money. So sometimes the scriptural translations are a little confusing, you know, because there's like, a, you know, master calls his servant, you think a servant is like a low-level guy. Well, you don't give like a low-level guy a talent, or three talents, or five talents. This is the equivalence of like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. In other words, these were your, this was your team, okay? If you're some huge, huge, I don't know, king or prince or duke or whatever who you are, and you call your men in, and like you give this one 500,000 and you give the, it's a lot of money. And so two of them said, well, what am I gonna do with this? Well, I wanna, I wanna do well with it. And so I'm going to invest it and trade and I'm going to do what I can do. And one of them says, well, I don't really like my master. He's harsh. And so I'm going to bury this money. Now, it's got to be a lot of money for you to bury the money, okay? You're going to bury the money. So I don't know what it is, $50,000, but it's a lot of money. But you're like, you know what? This jerk is going to come back. I'm going to be like, here's your money. Here's what you gave me. Now leave me alone. There are a lot of people have a view of God that way. Leave me alone. I didn't lie. I didn't cheat on my wife. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. I had this quiet time. So just leave me alone. I'm saved, obviously. I just need to not screw up until I die. So they're kind of like playing this defensive game. It's about not screwing up. It's about not sinning. But their view of God is really a view of the devil. And in other words, instead of saying, he has saved me. He loves me. How can I bless him? How can I live for him? You're saying, how can I not make a mistake? Because he's really awful. And if I make a mistake, he'll whack me. But if you love him, you say, even if I make a mistake, he loves me. And he will say, thank you for trying. Thank you. Even though you, you, you messed up on this and this, I see your heart and what you tried to do. But there are many people who say they're Christians, but they're, they're worshiping a God who is just a rule keeper, and their job is just to be nice, not to say anything wrong. And who does the master, when he comes back, what does he say to that servant? He basically condemns him because he knows that that servant actually hates him. He knows that. And he, he basically says, you know, it, this is not like you're pretending like you took the safe path. And I know there is no safe path. Either you love me or you hate me. And you hate me. 
And I know that. So even you, by your own standards, believing you're saved and playing it safe, you didn't play it safe. You played the devil's game. And there are a lot of Christians playing that safe game. Instead of living, living their lives in a, in a big way for God and fighting to take back the culture for God. And you know what, when you say for God, you mean for all of those who are out there suffering, some of whom know him and some of whom don't, who are depending on Christians who supposedly believe these things to fight for them and to speak against all these evils, just as Wilberforce spoke against the slave trade. He had nothing to gain. Those slaves were not gonna give him anything back. He did it just because he knew that if, if I know God and God saved me and God loves me, I've got to do what is right. I've got to do everything I can do. That, isn't that the question for us today? Who do we say God is? Does he just want you to play it safe until he returns any second? Do nothing? I, I close my book, Letter to the American Church, with the story of Gorbachev. Uh, who just passed away, by the way. Uh, and, but Gorbachev, um, some of you know the story, and it's very similar. Reagan, in many ways, very similar to Trump. When, when everybody said to Trump, you can't move the capital of Jerusalem, are you crazy? Do you know what's going to happen? And he was like, well, first of all, I said I'm going to do it, so I'm going to do it. You know what that is called? That's called having character. Yeah. Yeah, that's part of having character, doing what you say you're going to do. But also, he simply felt it was the right thing, and he did the thing that everybody said, well, you can't do that. All the rhinos, all the deep state, all the foggy bottom, all of them knew you can't do that. But he did it. Reagan is another story of a man, very similar situation. In 1987, I guess it was, he went to Berlin stood in front of the Brandenburg Gate, which was right next to where you see the, uh, the Berlin Wall. And he wanted to say boldly with the world watching, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. He wanted to say that. But all of the people who make a living, a good living from playing it safe, all of the people, you can go down the line, Colin Powell, Howard Baker, all of those, the old hands, all they knew, you know, he was a Johnny come lately to Washington, but they knew how things worked. You don't say that kind of thing, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You don't say stuff like that. Are you insane? Well, those voices, many of them are in the church today. Many of them are saying, you got to play it safe. Be careful. Be careful. You can't really defeat evil. So just lie down. You can't really defeat evil, so wait for Jesus to return. Don't fight. Who cares about people rotting in the Soviet gulag? Who cares? I just care about my salvation. I'm gonna have another quiet time. I got a new, I got a new highlighter. Reagan, over and over again was told by those voices, okay, some of whom are Christians, but it's the same spirit, it's in the Republican Party. They don't openly worship the devil, but they serve the devil by not engaging with him because they don't really believe Jesus can defeat the devil. If you really want to know, put a gun to their head, what do you believe? 
It's like, we're going to hedge our bets. We're not taking any chances. Whichever way the wind blows, I'm keeping my eyes open. I'm not going to commit to any crazy thing. That's how people get hurt. That was Reagan facing that moment in history. Now, I will tell you, before I tell you what he did, I will just remind you that in Germany, there were 18,000 pastors. Bonhoeffer was trying to wake up the church and speak to the 18,000 pastors and saying, if you stand now heroically, self-sacrificially, knowing that God is with you, there's no way the Nazis could take over this country. And that is a fact times 10. Believe me when I tell you the power of the church in Germany. Only 3,000 of the 18,000 stood. 3,000 on the far side of that were very pro-Nazi. But here's the key. The 12,000 in the middle who said, we're going to see which way the wind blows. We're going to see which way the wind blows. We don't want to be like the 3,000 that are going to get in trouble. You could go to jail. You could be deplaced. Stuff could happen to you. We want to play it safe. We want to be here 10 years from now. We don't want to take any risks. Let those suckers take the risks. If any number of German pastors had done the bold thing and stood with the 3,000 who were standing, there is no way the Nazis could have taken over. I'm telling you, this is a fact. This is just, this is, this is not some crazy speculation. But because those 12,000 decided to hang back, I'm not going to speak up today, not today. I maybe I'll get invited to this thing or that thing and then I'll get an opportunity and a voice and I'll have some influence. Not yet, not yet, not yet. Because of those 12,000, forget about the 3,000 on the Nazi side, forget about them. Talk about the 12,000 in the middle who said, we're going to play it safe. We're going to be like the servant that buries the talent. We're going to play it safe. We don't want to commit. The world went down in flames because of those 12,000 pastors. And we've got way more than 12,000 like that in America today. The question is, will they hear the voice of God and do the right thing? Do they believe the Lord wants them to act in that way? Or do they think that time has passed? There's nothing like that in our present. Just be nice. Put on a nice show on Sunday mornings. Don't freak anybody out with anything, you know, prophetic or anything, you know, radical. And your numbers will stay about the same. And, you know, you're, you're going to retire pretty soon. So hang in there. Well, that wicked spirit was speaking in the voice of Reagan and saying, Reagan, listen, the Soviet Union, this wicked, evil empire has always been there pretty much. It will always be there. The best you can hope for is detente, that they don't attack us, we don't attack them. Don't upset the apple cart. But Reagan, I don't think he knew he was being prophetic or acting prophetically, but Ronald Reagan knew that if there's such a thing as good or evil, it is our job to fight evil. And yes, there's times when you can do crazy wrong things, but there's also a time when you can hang back and do the safe thing when God says, no, do the right thing and you will see what I will do through you. And Reagan that day, against the advice of all of, today we would call them rhinos or whatever you wanna call them, you know, those good Christians who want to play it safe and be nice. He 
said what he felt God wanted him to say. And he thundered, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And when he said that, I want to tell you, he did what God wanted him to do and what everybody was telling him, you must not do. Whatever you do, don't do that. You'll start World War III. Of course we know that's Satan's voice. And you hear it over and over and over in history. Satan says, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. But if you hear from God, you say, okay, I'm gonna do that. Guess what happens? The Soviet Union came crumbling down in large part because one man, Ronald Reagan, said, I will do the right thing. I will take that chance because I'm thinking of the untold millions suffering horrors in, in the prison camps of the Soviet Union. I will do that thing that everyone says you must not do. Folks, I cannot tell you how many pastors there are, how many Christians in America today, certainly how many politicians and former vice presidents who have this mindset. And I want to tell you something. Some of them can be reached. Some of them can't. Our job is by the grace of God to try to reach them and wake them up, that they would fight, that they would get in the battle. Because if we get in this battle, we will be able to bring the truth of God to all those people in America who didn't even know that it existed, who didn't even know about our system of government and why it's wonderful and why it's beautiful and why virtue is necessary and all the stuff that, that, that we know, we will get an opportunity to tell those stories. We will get an opportunity to be involved in media and in government and in all these seven mountains. I'm here to tell you that's the Lord's will and he needs his people to get it and to do it and he has given us everything we need for that. Everything we need for that. And I, 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 want, I want to tell you, I, I won't tell you, but I want to tell you that in the book, Is Atheism Dead? When I wrote that book, folks, I was astonished by the evidence from science for God. No one in the church knows this. You think the world knows this? The evidence from archeology span that the Bible is history. I want to close on this, that we, are living at a time when the Lord has given us more and more and more evidence for himself so that even if you want to shrink back, you say like, I can't. It's overwhelming. It's true, it's true, it's true, it's true, it's true, it's true. Praise the Lord. God bless you. Wow, praise the Lord. How many of you are going to do the right thing? Yeah. Praise God. Well, we're going to take a 10-minute break now, so let's try to be back in the auditorium at 3.35. Okay, we'll do it 11 minutes. So right at the 3.35 mark for uh, our next speaker, Bishop E.W. Jackson.